that's quite an entrance. Uh, thank you for that, Tao. <laughs> uh, so good to be here uh, on our second Sunday in this building that is new to us. Um, so exciting to see so many people here and so many new faces, people who are here for the very first time today. So thank you for coming. Uh, be, be welcomed here. We, we want you to feel welcomed here. We want you to feel loved here. We're so grateful that you're here. Thank you for coming. And if you are a guest, please stop at the welcome desk in the lobby before you head out the door to enjoy the rest of your day. Stop and uh, sign a welcome card, and we've got a small gift waiting for you also that we'd like to make sure you get. Uh, a few things that we picked up already, because we're quick studies, uh, from our very first service, there are several things that we, we know. Number one, we know that people at the back of the auditorium can't see all that well uh, the people on the stage. So in short order, within the next week or so, we're going to raise everything up here about eight inches. So that will give better sight lines. You'll be able to see better. We also know that filling the center of the rows is vitally important, and we say thank you uh, for doing that so that we can get people in uh, to, uh, to worship the Lord with us. And we also know from last week that the coffee time works really well in the gathering place, which is just in that direction. So if you go out either one of those exits and, and turn to the right, you'll find the gathering place. It's a large open space, and there's coffee and refreshments there today. So please uh, stick around and snoop around the building if you didn't get a chance to do that last week. By all means, uh, avail yourself of that opportunity this week. And again, thanks so much for coming. For many, many years, I subscribed to a quarterly publication called Leadership Journal. The very first issue rolled off the press in 1980, and I collected every one of them until they went digital. The very first thing I did with my fresh copy of Leadership Journal when it arrived in the mail was to turn to the featured cartoon. I mean, they, had, they just had some great cartoons, fantastic cartoons. And a few years ago, uh, in one of the issues of the Leadership Journal, they featured a, a rather conventional-looking church with one of those colonial-style uh, billboards out in front, you know, close to the road, so that as people drove by, they could see what was up. And the sign on the church read, Welcome to the Light Church. 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 40-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments here, your choice. <laughs> Everything you ever wanted in a church and less. That's what the sign said on the cartoon. But, and it would be funny. It would be funny if it wasn't so true. There are just too many churches and too many believers Try, taking a watered-down approach to life and ministry, and worse, the Scriptures. And this was the same concern that James had when he wrote the letter that he wrote to the churches. Because it's just as likely uh, then as it is today for church people to kind of slide along with a, a bogus faith that doesn't really make any meaningful difference in the world. James wants us to understand that real faith is a faith to live by. He wants us to understand that authentic faith, genuine faith, is a faith that works. And he opens the passage 
that Mike read for us just a moment ago. In verse 14, he opens this passage with a question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So the writer seems to imply that faith alone cannot save a person from sin and eternal separation from God. He seems to be saying that. And the form of the question actually requires a negative answer. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Why, it's no good at all. That is the answer that the, the, the writer is anticipating. It's no good at all. That kind of faith is kaput. It just doesn't work. So he'll, again, he'll express the same sentiment in verse 24 uh, where he says, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. A person is justified by what he does? Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. That seems to contradict everything that the Apostle Paul taught. It seems to be going against the, the rest of Scripture. It's no wonder Martin Luther didn't think that James should be in the canon of Scripture. It seems to contradict what Paul is teaching. At first, James seems to be contradicting Paul. Paul argues hard and strong for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He argues over and over for that in various places. For example, Romans 3.28, he said, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. And then Romans 4.3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. He had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith. Romans 5.9, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, not by works, but by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And Galatians 3.24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You see? You see what I'm saying? Like, Paul is just all about faith. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is so clear from his writings. Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And he says, quite Frankly, not a result of works. So how in the world are we going to reconcile James and Paul? They, right? They, they seem to be contradicting each other. Well, at, at, at first brush, it certainly sounds that way. But let me, let me speak into that for a moment because Paul focuses much of his writing on on an emphasis on the time prior to conversion, and James focuses comments on the life after conversion. Paul was fighting against a religious tradition that promoted a false works salvation, and James is fighting against a light faith which minimized the importance of good deeds in the life of one who has been born again by faith through grace. Paul says good deeds cannot bring us to Christ. James says, once we come to Christ, we need to engage in good works. They, they do not contradict each other. In fact, they complement each other. One Bible commentator even says, 
Paul and James are not soldiers of different armies fighting against each other, but soldiers of the same army fighting back-to-back against enemies coming from opposite directions. Faith, if not accompanied by works, is useless. So the opening question in verse 14 naturally leads to a, a rather extended explanation. And so in this passage, James illustrates, he tries to illustrate what real, you know, dynamic, robust faith looks like from the inside out. Initially, he points out that genuine faith is not indifferent, but it's involved. If you have genuine biblical faith, if you really do trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not going to be indifferent about what happens in Texas or Las Vegas. You're not going to be indifferent about the plight of your next-door neighbor. You're going to be involved somehow, at least through prayer. You, you, if, you're, if you truly have faith, you're going to participate in the warp and woof of life around you. James 2.15 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Oh, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Real faith participates in meeting the legitimate needs of people And according to James 2.15, that all starts with the household of God. Brothers and sisters. That's our first responsibility, is to each other. That's our first responsibility. Furthermore, authentic faith is not independent, but it's in partnership. Verse 17, so also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself is dead, meaning it's, it's useless. It's without life. It has no breath. There's no movement. It brings no results. There can be no true faith that fails to produce good works. Years ago, Patty and I were guests at a wedding reception, and you know how they always have some twist on what to do if you want the bride and groom to kiss, right? Well, at this particular reception, they insisted that the entire table had to stand up and sing some little ditty about, you know, marriage or love or, you know, coping with each other, whatever the case may be. And, and so one of these courageous tables uh, stood up at the reception and sang that little, that little uh, ditty by Frank Sinatra. Those of you under 20 are going, who? Uh, Frank Sinatra. Love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage. This, I tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. Faith and good works are like a horse and carriage. They go together. You can't have one without the other. Dissolve the partnership, and faith dies. Faith was never designed to to stand all by itself. It was designed to be complemented or evidenced by the good things that we do 
with one another and for one another. Well, we also see here that bona fide faith is not invisible, but it's on display. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so, as was common in Greek rhetoric, uh, James is presenting a, a hypothetical critic. And of course, we know that in the church, all critics are only hypothetical, right? <laughs> it, James introduces a hypothetical critic into his dialogue. But someone says, someone will say, yes, of course they will, because there are critics everywhere, around every corner, behind uh, every bush and under every rock, there are critics. And someone will say, of course they will. But he answers that by saying, but you show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It's just another way of saying, you cannot show me your faith apart from works. You can't do it. It's impossible. That's the way he's arguing, you see. We delude ourselves to think that it doesn't matter if we demonstrate our faith or not. The whole point in verse 18 is that your, if your faith doesn't show, if your faith doesn't show, then you probably don't have the real thing. You're fooling yourself. Your faith, if your faith doesn't show, it might not be real. Moreover, real faith is not merely intellectual, but it comes from the heart. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see, even the demons have their religious facts straight. Even the demons believe in God. Even the demons believe that God is one, but they're still demons, and they're still opposed to the work of God. Ain't going to be any demons in heaven. So mere intellectual assent to the Christian faith does not save anybody. I think I told you this story more than once about a friend of mine with a highly, highly educated guy, Ph.D., which he says simply means piled high dung. Yeah, PhD. A guy was brilliant. Now he's bringing all kinds of facts and figures and apologetics and trying to persuade him to believe in Jesus. And nothing worked. He had all the all the mental assent. He had all the facts and figures. He he his head was full of Bible knowledge, but he didn't know Jesus. Not yet. He does now, but he didn't then. Knowing about salvation is not enough. Knowing about the death and resurrection of Jesus is not enough. Having read a systematic theology or two, or having read the Bible from cover to cover, and having your head full of facts is not enough. Every year, party goers from around the world converge on the Spanish city of Pamplona for the running of the bulls, uh, made famous, of course, by Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Running of the Bulls. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people converge on Pamplona, which is only a, a city of, I don't know, two or three hundred thousand people. 
Fifteen people have been killed in the running of the bulls since they started keeping records in 1911. And I was there in 1974. I ran with the bulls in Pamplona in 1974 like a crazy man, long before I met my wife and got domesticated and a few years before I actually got saved. I ran with the bulls in Pamplona and had a near miss. Bill Hillman is a 32-year-old Chicago-based journalist, and he's supposed to be an expert on the running of the bulls. He even co-authored a book subtitled, How to Survive the Bulls of Pamplona, Bill Hillman. But three years ago, Bill Hillman got the surprise of his life. An enormous fighting bull named Bravito lagged behind the rest of the pack as they were heading into the arena at the, in the middle of the city, which is where the, where the uh, running of the bulls ends. He, he lagged behind just long enough for Bill Hillman and another man to get in front of him, and Bravito gored Hillman in the right thigh and a 35-year-old Spanish man in the chest. Both of them survived, but Hillman, the so-called expert on surviving the bulls of Pamplona, uh, told the New York Times, we will probably have to update the book. <laughs> so just knowing about the running of the bulls was not enough. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. But it's not enough just to believe something about God. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons have intellectual assent to God and, and to the fact that He saves people who trust in His grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But these demons are not partakers of salvation, never have been, never will be. So James underscores the absolute necessity of faith that comes from the heart, not just from the head. What you read in the book has to get into your head, but what gets into your head has to get into your heart in order for you to be saved. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So moving along in the discussion, the author asks another question in verse 20. He, he says, do you want to be shown, you, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he goes on to present his readers with an enduring example of this very principle, that faith and works go together. And to emphasize the biblical faith is evidenced by good works, James now directs our attention to Abraham and, and also to Rahab as enduring examples. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
so you have to realize that, that James is using the, the term justified, not in the strictest theological sense of the word. And I don't know if you, you, you caught the irony of these two examples, but James couldn't have picked two more opposite people <laughs> as, as proof that our works substantiate our faith. I mean, to put Abraham and, 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 and the harlot, the prostitute, Rahab, in the same sentence, are you kidding me? If any, any Jewish leaders were reading this letter of James, they would have just, you know, dismissed it right there. How dare you put Abraham and Rahab in the same sentence? I mean, these two people couldn't be greater opposites. Abraham was the father of the Jews. I mean, he was a national hero, still is. Rahab? She was, she was a pagan prostitute. For heaven's sake. Abraham was moral, admired, a Jewish statesman, incredibly significant. Rahab was, was a harlot, looked on with disdain, considered completely and totally insignificant. However, at great risk, Rahab hid the spies, the Jewish spies that came to her, and then she let them down on the wall and guaranteed their safety. You can read about that in, in Joshua chapter 2. And it's this, it's this same woman who ends up in the biological genealogy of Jesus. <gasps> what scandal in the parsonage? One of Jesus' predecessors was a prostitute. Thank you, God. There's room for me too then at the cross. Rahab became a model of faith that was completed by her works. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Both demonstrated genuine faith by what they did for God. Both examples support the big idea that faith and works go together. You can't have one without the other. So now as we come to the end of the passage, we see a, a closing principle in verse 26. James kind of summarizes his entire discussion with a closing principle, and he says it like this. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? We get that. We, we, we understand it now. They go together. Without deeds prompted by obedience... To the word of God, your faith is empty, it's obsolete, and it's irrelevant. I mean, who's, who is, who is going to listen? Who's going who, to ask somebody for help that doesn't practice what they preach? That's what he's talking about here. you got to walk the talk. You say you believe, but woo, I don't see it. There's a story told about a mother who came to Napoleon... Um, on behalf of her son. Her son was about to be executed 
by the emperor. The mother asked the ruler if he would issue a pardon, but Napoleon pointed out that this was the the young man's second offense, and justice demanded death. Mother said, I'm not asking you for justice, sir. I'm begging you for mercy. Napoleon said, "Your, your son doesn't deserve mercy. She said, sir, with all due respect, it would not be mercy if it was deserved. I'm begging you for mercy. See, faith begins to really flourish. Faith takes flight when it is accompanied by good deeds of love and mercy. It really begins to take off. And we have so many opportunities in our own church and in the community of Windsor-Essex. So many opportunities for deeds of love and mercy. The Windsor Life Center is continuing to act out its faith in Jesus Christ by, by providing resources and a refuge for women who have been torn apart by the powers of addiction. And they introduce them to Jesus. It's a beautiful example, Linda, of faith and works complementing one another. God bless you and thank you for doing what you're doing. None of us here today really want anything to do with a church where there are 24% fewer commitments, a 7% tithe, although some of you might like that. Uh, (laughs) Did I say that out loud? Oh, my word. Uh, We don't really want that, do we? Do we? We We don't want a church with... That's light, light on commitment, light on giving, light on prayer, light on preaching, light on good deeds. We don't want that. I don't want that. You want that? We don't want that. No, thank you. And by the way, I'm, I'm really convinced. I thought about this this morning. Lord, don't let our people get the wrong idea by me preaching this message. It's part of James. We're, we're doing this expositional teaching through the book of James. So it's here. I had to preach on it. This was, this was the passage for today. But Lord, please don't let our people get the idea that I'm ranging on them because they're not active. I believe, I'm absolutely convinced that there is authentic proof of faith in the lives of so many of our people. Amen? It's just so evident to us. And this whole build up and work up to, to, to getting into the building and Meanwhile, we're still out there canvassing in the community, and we're still sharing our faith and all of that. Individually, our people are making a difference. Yes, they are. And corporately, corporately, our church is demonstrating its faith. I believe that. We keep hearing from people, how did you hear about the gathering? You know, and I'm hearing some amazing stories out in the community, uh, how people hear about us. Yeah, there are lots of people in our church who are really working it out. They're working out their their salvation with fear and trembling by doing what they know it's right to do. And and corporately, we are, I think we're making a dent. We're we're making a dent in the community. But I I just have to ask you this, this question. If you were the only person here this morning, I think I would still ask you this question. Is your faith, is your faith evident by what you do. 
Not your husband, not your wife, not the guy sitting behind you, or the guy who read Scripture. You. Is your faith evident by what you do? Let me give you about a week to ponder that. Let's pray. Hi, this is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast.